You're listening to the Hayek Program podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. Welcome, everyone. Today is January 24th, 2024. We're here today to discuss Larry White's new book, Better Money, Gold, Fiat, or Bitcoin. Larry is a professor here at George Mason University and a distinguished senior fellow with our Hayek program. And uh, as everyone here knows, uh, Larry is one of the world's leading experts in the idea of monetary theory and monetary policy, in particular, the field of free banking. And uh, so we're very excited to discuss this book today. To do that, we're joined by Josh Hendrickson, who is a professor at University of Mississippi. Josh is a macroeconomist, but also one of the people leading to a revival of price theory in economics at the moment, which is a very exciting development. And then we have uh, Nicholas Kachanovsky. Nick is a professor at the University of Texas at El Paso, and he's also the director of a center there, research center. You know, we're very happy to have Nick here with us. And then finally, we have uh, my good colleague, David Beckworth who is a uh, senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center and uh, heads up uh, the discussions of monetary policy and, and macroeconomics and has a podcast, uh, Macro uh, Musings, and so, which has been a very uh, successful podcast that has helped us try to negotiate monetary policy during these uh, last decade uh, of rather turbulent discussions. So the way this will work is uh, Larry will have the first Dibs at summarizing his book and, and laying out the argument. And then we will go in order, Josh, Nick, and then David to give commentary. But uh, for right now, uh, Professor Lawrence White. Thank you, Pete. Uh, the title of my book, which I don't think has been mentioned yet, <laughs> is Better Money, Gold, Fiat, or Bitcoin. So what I'm trying to do in the book is compare three alternative monetary standards three different potential bases for running a monetary system. The book's published by Cambridge University Press, and it's available in paperback and in Kindle versions. On the back cover of the book, I have blurbs from two people. One is Zuko, who is one of the developers of the Zcash cryptocurrency. That's a privacy coin. And the other is Judy Shelton, who you might remember was a nominee for the Federal Reserve Board who attracted some controversy by being, uh, at some points in her career, a proponent of the gold standard. And one way to describe the mission of the book is to explain the gold standard to cryptocurrency people and explain crypto to gold standard people, because often they haven't appreciated what the others are uh, arguing for. So the book just has six chapters. The first chapter is kind of setting up the historical groundwork for talking about whether it's feasible to have a private monetary system. Because when I talk about the gold standard and when I talk about Bitcoin, uh, obviously I'm, uh, I'm talking about non-governmental versions of those standards. So the first chapter is entitled Markets and Governments in the History of Money. The second chapter is How a Gold Standard Works which I try to uh, explain in terms of supply and demand diagrams. Third chapter is common misconceptions about the gold standard, because a lot of mainstream economists are either uninformed or are feigning ignorance about how a gold standard actually works, because they push uh, kind of basic misunderstandings about how a gold standard works. And I try to correct those misunderstandings, and that's both from critics of the gold standard and in some cases from proponents of the gold standard. Even some of its proponents are making not the strongest case by mischaracterizing how a gold standard works. Chapter four is how a fiat standard works. So again, in terms of supply and demand analysis and a discussion of the political economy, 
and the historical track record of fiat standards, right? Where a fiat standard is the kind of monetary standard we have today, where the currency is not redeemable for any commodity, is issued by the government. Fiat, of course, means a decree. A fifth chapter is how a Bitcoin standard works. So here again, uh, in terms of supply and demand analysis, I try to break it down and in particular try to explain the volatility we see in the price of Bitcoin. And then the last chapter is comparing and contrasting gold and Bitcoin standards. So if fiat money standards break down and we have to think about a plan B, which is a more plausible replacement or which would be more of an improvement, a gold standard or a Bitcoin standard? The first chapter on markets and governments in some ways is a retelling of the debate between the Mengerians on the origins of money. So Carl Menger offered really the first satisfactory explanation of how a commodity money emerges out of a pre-monetary economy or a barter economy, why it would be in the interest of traders to use indirect exchange rather than trying to directly barter what they produce for what they want to consume and how they then converge on a commonly accepted medium of exchange, that's money. Menger ran into opposition from Jörg Friedrich Knapp, whose book was entitled The State Theory of Money. So Knapp has uh, a lot of contemporary followers who sometimes call themselves chartalists, who insist that the state played an essential role in originating money and in originating coinage. And they find it inconceivable that uh, a monetary system can work outside of the functioning of the state. But Menger was pretty clear that money is not an invention of the state. Well, that, in fact, is a quote from the English translation. It's not the product of a legislative act. So the rest of the chapter is in the Mengerian tradition, trying to explain further steps in the evolution of money, dispel the chartalist myths about how coinage developed, how banking developed. In the chapter on the gold standard, as I mentioned, uh, there's a supply and demand analysis. And so what's different about a gold standard or what's distinctive about a gold standard is that the most basic money, gold, is not produced by government, but it's dug out of the ground by gold mines. And then is turned in, uh, some of the gold that's mined is turned into monetary gold by going to the mint, which produces coins out of it. And for the discussion of the supply and demand analysis, it doesn't really matter whether there are private mints or only government mints. But I do talk about the history of private mints. And my research on that was kind of a spin off of working on this book. So there's a, a supply curve for gold coming out of the mines. And that is a flow of gold. But when we thought, think about supply and demand for money, we're typically thinking in stock terms. How many units are there at a point in time today? And how many units are demanded at the current price level? And the price level, or inversely, the purchasing power of the monetary unit adjusts to equate the quantity supplied with the quantity demanded. In a gold standard, there's a certain amount of gold that's above ground only some of which is monetized. The rest is mostly jewelry, but they're also industrial uses. And that means as the purchasing power of gold goes up, if we think hypothetically what would happen at a higher purchasing power of gold, that makes it more expensive for people to have gold candlesticks or gold flatware or gold picture frames and to have gold jewelry. And so they will melt down some of it. In, in modern lingo, that's recycling the gold. And today, actually, a fairly large share of gold that goes into production is coming from recycling, something like 30% or more. So that means we have an upward sloping supply curve for monetary gold. And that means that if there's an increase in the demand for monetary gold, some of it will be satisfied by conversion of non-monetary gold into monetary gold. And the other part will be satisfied by a rise in the purchasing power of gold. So a demand shock will raise the purchasing power of gold. But that's not the end of the story because of the flow of gold coming out of the mines. At a high purchasing power of gold, it pays to dig a little deeper and in the long run to explore more, prospect more, open more mines. 
and then more gold will be produced every year. And that additional flow of gold will shift the supply curve to the right, bring the purchasing power of gold back down over time. And so we can say the purchasing power of gold is mean reverting. There's a trend to which it keeps returning if it's shocked away from it. Or as Milton Friedman put it in a famous article on commodity money, there's a pretty flat long run stock supply curve for monetary gold. An implication of that is if your economy starts to grow faster, that will put upward pressure on the purchasing power of gold. That will incentivize more gold mining. You'll get a faster growth in the money stock, and that will bring the purchasing power of gold to its long run trend, which is pretty flat. And so it's not an accident that we see in the historical record that the purchasing power of gold was very stable over long periods. So in the United States, the purchasing power of gold was basically the same when the, the international gold standard was abandoned in the First World War as it was when the U.S. joined the gold standard after the Civil War in 1879. It's not just a lucky accident that gold has exhibited a, a stable purchasing power over long periods. And of course, it's not just in the United States. Every country that's had an experience with a gold or silver standard has had lower inflation under gold or silver than it has had subsequently under fiat standards. Now, that's not inevitable in the sense that a fiat standard can be controlled in principle to give it a lower inflation rate, uh, either the zero average inflation rate or near zero that gold standard had or even a slightly negative inflation rate. It's just that we haven't seen that in practice. In practice, every country has had higher inflation under fiat money. So what is it about fiat money? Well, there's not a decentralized production disciplined by market forces that limits the output of fiat money the way it does the output of gold. It's up to central banks under fiat standards. So in the chapter on fiat standards, uh, I explain how central banks face a temptation, uh, especially when they're pressured by fiscal authorities to make more money available to finance government spending. And so it's, it's not surprising that a lot of economists have said, well, we need to constrain fiat standards. How can we do that? One route is to fasten some kind of rule on a central bank. And maybe some of my discussions will offer those uh, kinds of proposals. An alternative is to think about alternative uh, competition from alternative standards. And that was the sort of breakthrough that Friedrich Hayek provided us in his book, uh, Denationalization of Money. So he's talking about a world in which each fiat money faces competition from other fiat monies and even from private producers of money. And he predicts that private producers will try to keep the purchasing power stable. Well, it turns out that we now have privately produced monies or at least potential monies in the form of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. So the range of potential monetary standards uh, has increased. Uh, I've been writing about private money ideas since, well, the 1980s. So well, well before Bitcoin, and it just so happens that uh, because I was one of the few economists writing about this topic, I was lucky enough that some of my more obscure ideas became relevant. <laughs> People who understood uh, the problem and who understood how to write computer programs started working on the problem of can we develop uh, a cryptocurrency? Can we develop a currency that's not commodity-based, but not a fiat standard issued by a central bank. Instead, it's an irredeemable currency governed by some kind of computer program. You can trust it because it's programmed and nobody can change the program. And that's what Bitcoin turns out to be. Before, Even before Bitcoin was uh, developed, I had some exchanges with Hal Finney, and Nick Zabo, who are probably the leading candidates to have been Satoshi Nakamoto or part of Satoshi Nakamoto, if it's actually the name of a group of people who work together. Little did I know that they were going to come up with something with as much uh, success as Bitcoin t 
turned out to have. Uh, I found out about Bitcoin in 2010, so shortly after it launched, and in time to have made a lot of money if I'd invested heavily in it, but uh, I didn't do that, unfortunately. So I still have to teach economics. Economists have had various reactions to Bitcoin, and one characterization of it that I go out of my way to criticize uh, is the view, and, and John Cochran is one proponent of that view, that Bitcoin is an electronic version of gold, uh, and that therefore the volatility in the price of Bitcoin should be a warning that a gold standard is not the right way to go. And the point I make uh, at great detail is that Bitcoin and gold have very different supply mechanisms. So if you're an investor looking for an inflation hedge, okay, gold and Bitcoin are two alternative ways you could go. But if you're thinking about a potential monetary standard, if you're thinking about a money based on gold or a money based on Bitcoin, the supply mechanisms are very different. So gold is, as I've said, is produced by gold mines. And so it's limited by the cost of production. Bitcoin is on a predetermined quantity path. So it's written into the Bitcoin code how many Bitcoin will be created each period. And it's the path is a declining growth rate. Every four years or so, there's a halving of the expansion rate of Bitcoin until it maxes out at 21 million units. And currently in 2024, we're just below 20 million units. So almost 95% of all the Bitcoin that will ever be produced has been produced. But the important thing about the supply is that it's completely price inelastic. There's no response in the quantity of Bitcoin to anything. It's just on a timeline, pre-programmed. And that includes no response to the price of Bitcoin. Now, people are confused about that sometimes because when the price goes up, there is more Bitcoin mining. It attracts more people to plug in their computers and run the Bitcoin program to try to win the new Bitcoin that are being issued. But that just means there's more competition to win those new Bitcoin. It doesn't mean there are any additional growth in Bitcoin beyond what's already programmed. So Bitcoin has a vertical supply curve. And as a result of that, changes in demand are fully reflected in the price and there's no change in the quantity. And correspondingly, the volatility of Bitcoin, uh, the price of Bitcoin, right, which we can measure over time, is a lot more volatile than the price of gold or the price of, let's say, euros when all these things are priced in U.S. dollars. So Bitcoin, uh, one measurement of uh, 2010 to 2022, found that the price of Bitcoin had 8.23% volatility, which is more than four times as great as the price of gold in dollars or the price of euros in dollars. As a result of that volatility in the price of Bitcoin, Bitcoin has faded as a medium of exchange in the one market where it used to dominate, and that's the market for other cryptocurrencies. So it used to be that if you wanted to buy Ether, let's say, you would first get Bitcoin and then use the Bitcoin to buy Ether. Nowadays, people use stablecoins denominated in U.S. dollars. So U.S. dollar tether is the dominant means of payment in cryptocurrency markets, and the use of Bitcoin has declined quite a bit from its peak. The idea that Bitcoin doesn't make a suitable medium of exchange because of its volatility and that its volatility is tied to its supply mechanism uh, is not a new idea. Vitalik Buterin, the developer of Ethereum, said back in 2014, Bitcoin or any other fixed supply currency is, quote, too incorrigibly volatile to ever be a stable unit of account. And so what do we do about that? Uh, that's not Ethereum's project. Ethereum's project is to enable decentralized financial instruments. But if you want a cryptocurrency to play the role of a stable medium of exchange, he says, you need to experiment with intelligently designed flexible monetary policies. Well, a gold standard has a flexible monetary policy in the sense that the supply responds to changes in demand. If we study when people switch monies, for example, when people switch from a peso to a U.S. dollar, it's when the peso is highly inflationary. So I'm not predicting 
any mass exodus from the dollar into Bitcoin or into gold until fiat monies fail, that is, fail to maintain a stable value, just to be crude about it, until they fail to remain in single digits in the inflation rate. If every fiat money is suffering 20% inflation, or maybe, maybe the threshold is lower than that, but 20% inflation, then we would see some serious migration to something else. They're not going to migrate to stable coins denominated in dollars because if the, when the dollar has 20% inflation, so does Tether and so does USDC, their claims to dollars. An alternative within the cryptocurrency space uh, that's developed in recent years is flat coins. That is coins that are either pegged to a CPI measure. One example nowadays is called spot or have a supply mechanism that kind of replicates the way the gold standard worked, where when the purchasing power goes up, the supply responds, or if the purchasing power goes down, the supply grows less rapidly. And as a disclaimer, I'm a consultant to a project of that sort, hasn't been launched yet. And of course, it's very difficult to dislodge any incumbent money, but if we have high inflation, uh, it will be good to have a plan B. That, that project I, I could mention is called Prasaga. Uh, but it's not designed to be a speculative investment the way Bitcoin is. It's designed to provide a stable valued cryptocurrency. So that's where I end up. If we want to do the best for money users, we want to give them the most flexibility. We want to dismantle legal barriers to switching currency something that Hayek was you know, proposing 50 years ago. And then we'll let the market tell us how much people value uh, stability in the purchasing power of money by them voting with their wallets. I will end there and uh, look forward to hearing the comments. Thanks. Okay, so now we'll hear from Josh and then Nick and then David. So I'd kind of like to start just by talking about why I think that this book is uh, important. And uh, I hope that you guys will indulge me here because I want to share a quote that sort of lives rent-free in my head all the time is that uh, in uh, Jörg Nihon's The Theory of Money, he has a chapter on commodity money. And in the introduction, he says, commodity money does not exist today. It's not ideal in the sense that it's relatively easy to imagine a non-commodity system that is intellectually more satisfying than commodity money. In fact, a non-commodity system since it provides since it gives monetary policy more freedom can if it is ideally managed always do at least as well as a commodity money system and probably better yet pr from a practical point of view commodity money is the only type of money that at the present time can be said to have passed the test of history in market economies and then he goes on to say he, writing in 1978 that you know the subsequent decades will kind of tell us you know, how this plays out and whether the promise of sort of non-commodity money uh, is as good as the theory suggests. And so I bring up this quote because I kept being reminded of this quote when I'm kind of reading this book, because I think this is kind of the essence of, of Larry's project here is that we've had four decades since uh, Nihans was writing uh, about this, by which we can assess the performance of a fiat standard rather than judging the, the theoretical fiat standard in comparison to uh, our experience with the gold standard. And so I think that Larry's book is important here because it's allowing us to reflect on the history of commodity money, but also allowing us to reflect on some of the history of fiat money, and then considering the possibility of this sort of digital or synthetic kind of commodity money uh, in Bitcoin. And and I think that the reason this is important is that I don't know how anyone can really objectively look at the evidence and consider the sort of last half century of our fiat standard to have been much of a success. And I think that's the strength of Larry's book is it challenges us to think about what could be better. And it challenges us to think about these kinds of things. I mean, I think we as economists, we, we complain about the inefficiencies of monopoly and we, and we talk about the importance of markets and we talk about the importance of competition. But then somehow when this comes to money and central banking, all of that talk just gets thrown out the window. And, you know, where others might look at kind of the technocratic nature of monetary policy and the theoretical possibilities and all the recent tools and facilities and things like that that have 
that have been introduced by the Federal Reserve and see this as some form of sophistication in our in our understanding. I just look at this and I see a lot of complexity and I see like the increasing possibility of fragility by just making things more and more complicated uh, in the hopes of of making our system more stable. And I think that, you know, I can say this because I have neither the hope nor the desire to get a job at the Federal Reserve. And so that frees me to say things that others might not be willing to say. But I mean, I think this is the essence of why I think Larry's book is important, is that what Larry is doing is he's providing an even-handed account of these of these different systems. And he's allowing us to think about what the possibilities are going forward. And, you know, one thing that I will say is that, you know, I echo Larry's call at the end of the book that, you know, we should, we should allow competition, we should let, we we should let these things compete and see, you know, what, what actually uh, succeeds. But I'm a little bit pessimistic about the, the possibility of that. And, and one of the reasons that I'm pessimistic about that possibility is that I see like the the main impediments to that as as being political, and so I think one of the problems that we face is that uh, we don't just have a fiat standard in the United States; uh, we have a U.S. dollar standard throughout the world, and what that means is that we have a monetary system in which like the debt securities of the United States serve as the reserve assets of foreign central banks. And what that allows the U.S. to do is accumulate substantially more debt than they would be able to accumulate otherwise and at lower cost. And I think that the U.S. in particular is is going to be very, very difficult to convince to let competition happen and to give up on on the privilege um, that it has. In fact, I think that the instinct of the U.S. is going to be to try to crack down on these things. I mean, you already see this a little bit with regards to uh, Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. There's a lot of push to bring all of this stuff within the uh, know your customer anti-money laundering law regimes that that exists now and to try to make uh, Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies compliant with all of these rules and to monitor everything that's going on in, in these in these markets in the same way that they try to monitor everything that's going on in, in banking. And I think, and so I'm quite pessimistic that we'll actually get this competition, but I nonetheless echo uh, Larry's call for that. And I think where I might add value here, I guess, is to talk a little bit about Bitcoin. And I think that I share some of Larry's concerns, and I, but I th- at the same time, I think I'm a little bit more optimistic about it. But I think one important thing to note before before mentioning that is that, you know, you know, as Larry kind of details in the in the book, and uh, but it's something that often gets forgotten. I think the the further and further we get from the Bitcoin white paper is that you know the purpose of Bitcoin was really to create you know an electronic form of cash, and so the the idea was is that you would be able to exchange you know value for value without any third party approving of the transaction or watching over uh, what you're doing or or having to process. Uh, your payment or, or or what have you and and I think that's particularly important because the world that we're moving towards seems to be a world where that's going to be less and less possible. You have this push for you know to eliminate cash and you have this push for central bank digital currencies and, and things like that and I think that that's pushing us in the opposite direction of what you know the the people or person who created Bitcoin had in mind and the and the predecessors to that creator. But what I would say is, you know, I applaud Larry for considering a Bitcoin standard. It would have been very easy to just make this a book about, hey, should we go back to the gold standard and, and compare that? I think by adding Bitcoin, um, he's doing two things. I mean, first of all, it, it's showing a little bit of the, like the seriousness with which I think other economists should be taking Bitcoin. I mean, I like like Larry, I learned about this very early on. Um, I didn't learn about it, I don't think, until 2011. You know, but when I heard about it, I was fascinated by it because it was kind of a technology that would give us the ability to think about a lot of these things that we talk about in monetary theory, but think about them, you know, out of sample, so to speak, right? We could test some of these predictions and see whether or not, you know, they just match like some empirical observation or whether, you know, we, we see this uh, more broadly for things that, that didn't even exist when, when the theory was written down. So, so I think that Larry deserves to be applauded for for taking that seriously and thinking about this, but also for 
you know, presenting what I would call like a mainstream economics approach to thinking about Bitcoin, you know, there, there, there's nothing in this book that would say that, you know, you have to read this economist or that economist if you really want to understand things, which I think, you know, kind of when you get into Bitcoin and crypto and things like that, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, well, you can only read this person or you can only read that person or you can only be an Austrian or you can only, you know, be this or that. And, and I think that, you know, what Larry is doing is he's raising a lot of important issues here and he's doing so in a way that is important for the supporters of Bitcoin and uh, cryptocurrency more broadly, but that also is important for economists so that fellow economists maybe actually read this and take it seriously instead of being as dismissive as, as they, they tend to have been towards this. Okay, so why am I a little bit more optimistic? I think I'm a little bit more optimistic because I think that the volatility of the price can be associated with the volatility of the possible outcomes of the system. And I mean that in a literal and a figurative sense. So in other words, what I'm saying is, is that I think one of the reasons that we see so much volatility in the price is, as Larry says, because there's a, there's a fixed supply. But I think a lot of the volatility is because people are trying to figure out whether this thing is actually something that you want to hold or, and what it's worth. And I think there's a lot of disagreement about what it's worth. Even if you just confine yourselves to people who think that it's wonderful, I mean, if you talk to people who think that Bitcoin is inevitable, right, like they still can't agree on what it's worth. And so I think that's a significant thing to point out. And, and so, and, and the other reason I think that we see a lot of this volatility is that we don't have a lot of information about like adoption cycles of, of things like uh, gold and silver. It's very hard to get prices of these things before, you know, like in ancient times or something like that. You know, I suspect they're less volatile because of some of these market-based mechanisms that Larry talks about. But I think one of the things here that's that's difficult is watching something go from what looked like a niche to now being something where you can buy an ETF of Bitcoin on the stock exchange. I think I would anticipate that something like that would have a lot of volatility, but that that volatility might reflect sort of adoption cycles. And so some of that volatility might go away over time. And in particular, if you think about how commodity systems developed and things like that, you had the introduction of banknotes and deposit contracts and things like that that allowed you to, to, to trade without actually trading the underlying sort of base layer asset. And so maybe as time goes by and things become a little bit more sophisticated and, and well accepted, maybe some of that volatility would die down because the fluctuations in the demand for the sort of base layer asset, the actual Bitcoin might, might calm down as well. And the other thing that I think is, is worth noting, and, and Larry mentions this as well, but I think this is worth noting is Bitcoin is kind of like a, it's kind of like Milton Friedman's ideal system, only, it, you know, only the growth rate, you know, stops. I mean, I think Friedman would have just had it grow forever, but, you know, it's basically Friedman's K percent rule, right? And it's essentially like the, let's just uh, sort of do no harm kind of idea. And I think that that idea itself just deserves more attention among economists because a lot of what we focus on when we think about monetary policy is is you know what's optimal monetary policy and how you know should central banks behave to this shock or that shock and there's much to be said actually for a sort of do no harm approach to monetary policy which was kind of Milton Friedman's idea behind the K percent rule is sort of like um, yes there might be volatility yes there might be business cycles associated with fluctuations in money demand when you know the money supply is, is growing at some constant rate but those fluctuations and that volatility won't be caused by monetary policy you know it'll have causes rooted in things that are actually going on in the economy and i think that that idea itself uh, sort of deserves a little bit more attention but overall um i would say you know i, I applaud larry on this book i really enjoyed uh reading it i think it covers a lot of ground even beyond what one might expect just from the title and I look forward to um, making my students read it. Okay, Nick? Yes, let me uh, start with something I think is uh, straightforward but important, and it's the, the timing of the book. Right? The book is coming out when we see these inflation discussions in the U.S., in Europe, and, and in other countries. Uh, it's also coming out you know, shortly before the Federal Reserve will start to discuss uh, any revisions to their monetary framework, how they do monetary policy. Uh, and in that discussion, the question will be, can we do better? Uh, and can we do better requires to have a standard of a reference of what better money or better monetary policy uh, looks like. 
And I think Larry's book gives you like a fresh look of how to deal with that question. Uh, and one of the things that this book is pointing to is that better money doesn't have just to mean, you know, a different monetary policy, maybe a different inflation target or a different monetary rule. Uh, it can also mean a different monetary standard. Uh, and I think that's one of the uh, interesting points of this book. It's not just comparing how to do policy, but how you compare different monetary standards, in this case, and gold, fiat, and, uh, and Bitcoin. And that's like opening the horizon, the, the you know, the, the view of anyone who needs to decide how to do policy. Uh, and with that, uh, that contribution, it also gives you a, another viewpoint that a different standard or money supply uh, doesn't have to be, you know, government or publicly produced. It can be privately produced. We used to know this in the old days when we were living under the gold standard, gold was produced by private producers. Today, we are used to have central banks producing our fiat money. Uh, but one of the interesting points of Bitcoin when it came out in 2009, 2010, is like open to the public again the idea that there might be a case uh, for privately produced money. Uh, and that kind of raises the bar or opens a new question for central bankers on uh, you know, what the benchmark they have to be to say, I'm doing a good job. Uh, and I agree that if you look at most of the history of central banks, uh, it's hard to say that they are a clear success. Uh, they have very important failures. Now, uh, another point uh, is that this message that uh, Larry's book is giving out, uh, it's not just important for the US. Uh, if you look at other countries, like my home country, Argentina, right? the discussion of what to do with money is it's very important. In the last 80 years, the average inflation rate in Argentina has been 60%. So the broad discussion in a country like that is not just uh, what we tweak in our central bank is how do the whole thing about providing money and doing monetary policy different? Uh, it's not new, it's not just today with the new government in Argentina, the topic of totally abandoning the peso and adopting the US dollar as a, a national currency is up on the table again. So here you have a contemporary real case where for them better money may be just abandon your standard and adopt something else. Uh, in the case of Argentina, the US dollar, uh, if you open that question in the US or the Eurozone or a place like that, it may be uh, something else. Can we go back to the gold standard? Can we adopt some type of, even if not Bitcoin, because it's too volatile, I don't know, a Bitcoin 2.0, right? That's what mentioned before, where you're trying to stabilize, not have it so volatile. Uh, so opening that question to think about different standards, I think is, is very, very important. The, the other thing I think is interesting is that through the whole book, uh, and Larry uh, summarized very well all the chapters, uh, even if it's underlying at some point, you have like a common analytical framework to study these standards. It's not like you're looking at three different things, gold, fiat and Bitcoin, and you have to find a way how to compare them. Uh, you can see there is a common analytical uh, way to look at this. Uh, and it's a basic, maybe the demand and supply analysis for the behavior of money supply and how that reacts to changes in money demand. But even if it's simple, it's very useful and very important to have a common way to think through all these standards. And maybe especially for the case of Bitcoin, this gives some a reality check, right, to the expectations that Bitcoin will be money. Uh, we don't know for sure. It may or may not be, but how the Bitcoin rule, if you want, the money supply rule behaves to properly understand that is crucial to answer the question, how likely is that Bitcoin or any cryptocurrency can eventually become money? By doing this, and this is a very valuable message for everyone who reads this book, is avoiding this... Uh, if I may use the term type of nirvana fallacy when we think about fiat money and central banks. It's very easy for us to uh, you know, imagine a central bank that behaves perfectly. And then there is no question that fiat money will be not a better standard, it will be the best standard. Nothing can beat a central bank in theory. Uh, the point is, can we have a better standard than central money in reality? Uh, so setting that stage, I think, is a very valuable message for anyone who thinks about these uh, these monetary issues. And the last point I, I want to mention, and I totally agree with, with Josh on this, we'll do the same, 
this book is providing, I think, very deep messages, very clear analysis of these monetary issues, monetary history, but in a very accessible way. Uh, and so for my fellow faculty listening to this, this is a book that you can use in any level course. And uh, if I keep teaching as I do here, money and banking, it's very likely that my students are going to encounter this book sooner than later. Uh, so in that, just in that sense, I think it's a very valuable contribution to provide this wide analysis in a very uh, precise and yet accessible way. But now I, I would like to uh, pass the mic to David. All right. Thank you for having me, and uh, thank you for a great book, Larry. I've chatted with you before about it, and and one thing I like about the book is that I personally learn things from it. I know you have chapters on Bitcoin standard, fiat standard, gold standard, but chapter one by itself, in my view, was worth the price of the book. The history of thought between the Mangarian view versus the Chartalist view, and then the history of, of money itself was, was very rewarding to read it. Um, everything from, you know, you mentioned Lydia, the coinage in Lydia, all the way up to the gold rushes in the U.S., private notes, and and then the, the advent of fiat money. So a really rich history in there. Uh, I, I've benefited from it, but I was, I was able to share it with people, too, like Nicholas and, and Josh have noted. Of course, they're teachers. They share it with their students. I share it with people who accost me when they know I'm an economist. Hey, what do you think about Bitcoin? Hey, you're an economist. What do you think about the gold standard? And I have given your book out, Larry, so I want you to know um, I've, I've given it to him because, as Nicholas said, it's very accessible, and I, and I think it covers a lot of ground. And again, the history of money and the history of thought on money in that chapter one is so invaluable because there is a lot of confusion, I think, out there, a lot of uh, charterless who are very loud and, and dominant voices. Okay, so let's put that to the side. Let me make some observations here, and I'm going to go to bat a little bit, Larry, for fiat, okay? <laughs> this has been mostly a non-fiat uh, rally here of sorts. So I'm going to make a gentle, probably not robust case for fiat. And I want to begin with the criteria that you outlined early on for what is better money. The title of your book, Better, better Money, Gold, Fiat, or Bitcoin, which is a question you ask. And the criteria that you note, and then you note you take a non you know, non-top-down, you want to see what the people say. What, what do people's preferences reveal? And you know two things that seem to come up in history. One is people prefer commodities or some asset that's highly liquid. It, it functions as a medium of exchange, easy to use to facilitate transactions. So transaction assets, one criteria that seems to be popular, people's preferences reveal. A second criteria, though, is people seem to prefer... Um, money that leads to a stable monetary system. So individually, you want an asset that you can trade with, but collectively, you want one that provides macroeconomic stability. Avoid depressions, avoid excess inflation. Two wonderful criteria. And so I'm going to ask this question, and, and Josh kind of alluded to it earlier, but might the global dollar system be it? I, I think we can view the global dollar system in some sense, in a Nigerian sense, it's a big network of, of money that has grown. Nicholas talked about Argentina. Well, it's, it's interesting. What is the currency they're currently debating now to adopt? It's, it's, it's not Bitcoin, it's the dollar. And there's a reason they're talking about the dollar, not some other currency. So if I go to the BIS, which is the Bank of International Settlements, and I look at some of their data, they keep track of uh, total credit in the global economy as best they can. And they note that there is about $80 trillion denominated in, in dollar-denominated debt, both bank loans and debt. And they compare that to the next largest currency group of credit, and that's the euro at $30 trillion. And then the yen's down at $21 trillion. So if you look at just like debt instruments, huge, huge difference. And, and the gap is, is more than just a gap. It's a growing gap. If you look over time, it's growing. So just one observation, there seems to be wide acceptance, and not just at central banks, but more broadly, private uh, entities, firms, individuals want to transact in dollars. If you look at the um, amount of dollar transactions on the SWIFT payment system, the largest payment system in the world, it's about 47% near the end of 2023 for the dollar, about 23% for the euro, the yen's at 4%, the Chinese yuan's down 3.7%. Um, a lot of, lot of attention has been given to Chinese yuan, but still it's just under 4% compared to 47% for the dollar in terms of payments being made. If you look at trade invoicing, it's dominated by dollars. Josh mentioned 
share of foreign reserves dominated by dollars. And, and there's been lots of research that shows when there's a crisis, people tend to make more use of dollars because it's, it's cheaper in terms of financing, it's more trusted. And so this dollar network effect tends to grow during crisis. It, tends, it looks to be growing just globally. So in one sense, that strikes me as something people's preferences are revealing. Yes, there's some state actors that may be driving that, but also I think the public writ large seems to be embracing the global dollar system. And I think Argentina might be a, a more recent case in point. So even before the government has thought about it, the public has, has embraced dollars. So that, that's the first kind of observation I would make. Maybe in some sense, the global dollar system is a form of a better money. And, and some of it, you know, it's first mover advantage, network effects, but it seems to be growing. Second question, and, and, and this is a little more, maybe more provocative than even that one, but can we make the claim that a, a fiat currency is in some sense backed by real resources in the following way? So if you take a, a country that has a central bank that religiously sticks to its inflation target, and I'm, I'm going to pick on the Eurozone, the ECB, because they've, they've been very, if anything, they undershoot their inflation target. You, you can think of them being so dedicated to that target that they're willing to dedicate real resources to making sure they hit their 2% inflation target. So in other words, there's an, there is implicitly a willingness to dedicate real resources to guarantee you hit a target. In the case of the US, and again, fiat currencies have a terrible track record, but you can imagine a scenario that if the Fed wanted to hit 2% inflation and for some reason its central bank balance sheet couldn't do it anymore, what would happen? Treasury would step in and who's behind treasury taxpayers. So there is some kind of, at least implicitly, some real resource backing fiat money. And I, I would throw this thought experiment. What would happen if we completely ended the US government? Would the dollar continue to operate? So I know you've done work with Will Luther on the Somali shilling, where we do see some continued use of the Somali shilling due to network effects. So you know what, what is driving fiat currency's value? It's growth around the world. Is it just strictly network effects? Or is there some kind of implicit backing of the taxpayers? I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on that. Final question, observation is one that we've talked about before. And, and that is, could we even return to a commodity standard or a gold standard, even if we wanted to? That was the ideal we could all agree upon. And I ask that in light of the fact that most countries around the world have central banks governing their monetary systems. So it would, it would be a central bank run global you know, gold system or a central bank maybe run, I'm not sure about Bitcoin, but definitely if you return to gold or some commodity standard, you'd have central banks. And the, the challenges, it would, it would strike me as that it would be very difficult for them to follow the rules of the game for the gold standard, which we saw during the interwar period, right? Central banks, they cheated because they felt domestic political pressure. They were less concerned about international balance, more about domestic balance. And, and so my question is, even if we could agree that the gold standard or some commodity standard was the ideal, how easy could we get back to that and how successful would it be given politics we now face? I'll stop there. Okay, Larry, do you have any responses? Yes, uh, thanks to Nicholas and Josh and David for your comments. Uh, you really went too easy on me, but I appreciate it. I share some of the tension that uh, I heard in Josh's remarks. On the one hand, he's optimistic that Bitcoin will improve, uh, that the volatility will diminish as time goes on. On the other hand, he's pessimistic because if it starts to succeed in a bigger way, the government will clamp down on it and has already started. And I think both of those things, well, I think the second one is certainly true. I'm a little less optimistic about the volatility of Bitcoin diminishing. We can do a, you know, alternative world experiment where if we were on a Bitcoin standard and everyone held it as their medium of exchange and so most of the demand for it or even all the demand for it was transactions demand, then that would be more stable than the current system where most of the demand for Bitcoin is speculative. People buy it because they want the price to go up. They don't tend to use it or they, they think it's too far off in the future to worry about whether Bitcoin becomes the world currency. I agree with Josh that uh, there's something cool about Bitcoin demonstrating to us 
an actual rule-governed supply, whether it's a supply of money or whatever you want to call it, it's a supply of an asset, uh, of an unbacked asset, it is kind of like a Friedman K percent rule, except that it actually has teeth. People like to say that Bitcoin is protected by cryptography and by game theory, because in principle, the source code could be amended, but in practice, the widely uh, distributed set of Bitcoin payment validators or nodes or miners, as they're sometimes called, don't want to kill the goose that lays the golden egg. And therefore, they are very reluctant to change the uh, Bitcoin code. And they certainly don't want to change the limit to the number of units, because that would undo the reassurance that people have that it won't, the supply won't be monkeyed with. They even had trouble in 2017 when there was a big run-up in Bitcoin transactions volume and people were waiting days to have their transactions processed. There was a proposal to make the blocks of transactions bigger so that they could be processed faster, and that was voted down. The people who wanted bigger transaction blocks, they shifted off. They cloned Bitcoin, except added bigger transaction blocks, and that's called Bitcoin Cash. And that's not been a big success. Its value is way below that of Bitcoin and hasn't been you know, widely adopted as a payment medium. So uh, we've got a durable rule. And the Bitcoin network has remained up and the payments processing has proceeded pretty much without a hitch. One use that Bitcoin has that I haven't m mentioned today, but I think is important, is that it provides a payment that is not censorable or at least not easily censorable by central banks. So you may remember the Canadian truckers strike where the Canadian government said, we're not going to stop Canadians from sending any money to these truckers who we declared to be outlaws. And they simply put a stop on their bank accounts and wouldn't let anybody send them money. And that's a problem with a centrally controlled fiat system. Uh, another example would be if you want to send money to people who are not in the good graces of their government, say dissidents in Belarus who want to establish a democratic regime there. You can't wire them dollars, it won't get through. Government doesn't let them have bank accounts that can receive your dollars, but you can send them Bitcoin. So because it has its own payment rails, it's a way of making uncensored transactions. And that's its main use case right now. The question is whether that's gonna broaden out to allow it to become a more commonly accepted medium of exchange. And that's what uh, I'm a little skeptical about. So I have great appreciation for the innovation that Bitcoin uh, has brought and the way it's actually launched a functioning payment system, which is an alternative to the fiat money system. The question is, is it designed in a way that will allow it to grow even if uh, especially if governments allowed it to grow. But of course, we have to, if we want to allow it to grow, we have to resist uh, government efforts to restrict access to it or, as in China, ban it completely. I appreciate that uh, Nick brought up uh, the question of the debate of over dollarization in Argentina. And I mentioned in the book that for practical purposes in high inflation countries, Argentina, Venezuela, Lebanon, Zimbabwe, when people choose a better money than the one their government is giving them, the US dollar is the number one alternative. And that's because it's the incumbent with the largest payment network in the world, right? The Swiss franc has a better inflation record, but people don't put themselves on the Swiss franc because there aren't that many transactions where the Swiss franc is the accepted medium of exchange. So the dollar's incumbency gives it a great advantage as long as the Federal Reserve doesn't blow it by producing highly volatile inflation. So I think it's important if the dominance, if the Fed wants to continue the global dominance of the dollar, that they do seriously work at bringing the inflation rate back down to their 2% target. So David was the most uh, provocative. So let me respond to his playing devil's advocate, I'm going to call it, <laughs> on behalf of fiat standards. 
I do believe that a global monetary system is optimal. That is, the international gold standard was a global monetary system, and I don't see any advantage in breaking the world into nationalistic money blocks. And this is a point, of course, Hayek made in his 1937 book, Monetary Nationalism and International Stability. Monetary nationalism is the opponent to a stable international financial system because it means that when money flows out of one country, it contracts the whole credit system in that country. So I'm all in favor of a global monetary system, or to put it in you know, standard language, I think the whole world is an optimal currency area. If we define optimality from the point of view of the consumers, the users of the system, and not from the point of view of a Keynesian planner who's worried about you know, the effectiveness of using devaluation to relieve unemployment, which at most is a very short-run policy. But is it a national currency that we should rely on as an international standard? The great thing about the international gold standard was no one country controlled the supply of money, whereas the U.S. government controls the supply of dollars. And as we've been seeing in recent years, they can use the network property of the dollar network to try to penalize countries they don't like for foreign policy reasons. So they can you know, freeze Iran's or Russia's accounts in New York uh, and try to exclude them from the international dollar payment system. The risk, of course, is that they come up with an alternative payment system and stop being so uh, interested in getting dollars. But it's for that reason, for the value of incumbency, of being the money that everybody accepts because everybody else accepts it, and because up until last year, or up until 2021, the track record on inflation was pretty good. David mentioned the euro as a possible competitor, and the euro was kind of the last great hope of a fiat money constitution because they wrote out an explicit constitution that said our one goal is stable purchasing power. We don't worry about real variables like unemployment. We are solely focused on price stability. But then they went and blew it because they started worrying about other things. They started worrying about unemployment. They started worrying about financial stability, that they being the European Central Bank. And so their inflation record has not been any better than the U.S. dollar. When we had 9% inflation a couple of years ago, they had 10% inflation. And their central bank has been just as slow as ours in responding to that inflation and bringing it down. Uh, so it would be nicer to have an international standard that doesn't rely on any one point of failure, any one central bank, which may have its price stability interests assuming they have that interest, undermined by the fiscal demands placed on them by their own government or by foreign policy interests of that government. But yeah, the U.S. dollar is a better money for people in Argentina, for people in Lebanon. And so I'm all in favor of choice in currency. And therefore, in practical terms, that means letting people use the dollars they want to use and not preserving terrible local currencies with legal restrictions. David uh, at one point said, you can imagine a scenario in which the 2% inflation target is closely maintained. And that harkens back to a point that Josh made. Yes, you can imagine it. And on the blackboard, you can draw it up. The question is, can you get it in practice? We haven't gotten it in practice. The US dollar has been better than other, some other currencies, uh, but it's worse than it could be. But uh, the note I end the book on is to say, I don't expect people to abandon the U.S. dollar unless it gets really bad, unless it gets worse than it currently is. So as long as we are stuck on a dollar standard due to the inertia or the incumbency advantage, we do have to worry about giving the Fed better advice for conducting monetary policy. It's still relevant. It's not that people will abandon the dollar if it strays even a little bit from what we would like to see it do. But getting central banks to obey what we draw up on a blackboard for them is not something we should be optimistic about. All righty. I want to thank everyone today for their contribution. 
and to congratulate uh, Larry again on uh, this great book. As uh, he mentioned, the title is Better Money, Gold, Fiat, or Bitcoin, and is published by Cambridge University Press. So thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. For more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.